Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 26 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, The Gospel in Antioch and Then Iconium, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 13, verse 44, through chapter 14, verse 7. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? Well, this section is dominated by Jewish opposition to the gospel, tremendous hostility and uh, persecution by the Jews against Paul and the spread of the gospel, and Paul's decisive turning um, here to the Gentiles and them being glad and receiving the word. And so, uh, again, as I've studied the book of Acts and look across it, one of the most significant themes is the movement of the church uh, of Jesus Christ from Jew only at the beginning, uh, Pentecost, to Jew plus Gentile, or even dominated by the Gentiles by the end of the book of Acts. And so we're going to see significant movement in that regard. Also, there's a tremendous prophecy in here uh, from Isaiah, which will uh, gain from us, or we will focus on in in an amazing way, how the Lord said to Jesus, how God the Father said to Jesus, I will make you a light for the Gentiles. Mm. And how Paul and Barnabas take that as their personal mandate. This is going to be a fascinating study. Absolutely. Well, let me go ahead and read our passage so that we can have a sense of the whole as we dig in. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Andy, why did so many people in Pisidian Antioch turn out the next Sabbath to hear the word of the Lord? And what's the significance of the fact that this crowd includes Jews and Gentiles? Well, the Lord is doing a great work uh, through the Holy Spirit, attracting attention so that there's a hearing of the gospel. We are commanded to go out and to proclaim the good news. We're commanded to go out and find people uh, who aren't looking for God. Uh, There is no one who seeks him. 
uh, as it says in Romans 3. So we are to go out. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. But it's fascinating how here the Holy Spirit brings people so that they can hear the gospel. Also, it's because of how amazingly it went in the synagogue uh, there in Pisidian Antioch, and the people were talking about it all week long. They almost couldn't wait to come back and find out more, so they all electrified. Again, this is something we would ascribe to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is stirring up um, interest, and, and many people are coming to hear the word. Uh, and so also we see some aspect here of Jewish jealousy, uh, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. But um, Gentiles are there, Jews are there, um, and they're, here, they're here to hear, there to hear more about the gospel. Why were the Jews so filled with jealousy of Christ and of Gentile believers? Okay, so that's in verse 45. They saw the crowds and you know nothing they'd ever done. Uh, would have attracted such Gentile interest in mm. the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But now in one week, uh, everybody's electrified and, and things are happening. And, um, you know, it's the very thing um, that he warned. You know, if, you're, if you Jews are going to be um, scoffers, if you're going to oppose, God is going to go in a different direction. Um, so as you were preparing to read and as we're looking at it, I look back uh, at the trial that Jesus had uh, before Pilate, and in Mark 15, um, verse 9 and 10, it says, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, for he knew that it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. So mm. uh, that was the motivating factor. They were uh, envious of Jesus, his power um, uh, to work miracles, and his popularity. And so there is this sense of, of envy. Now, Paul's going to talk about a theology of Jewish jealousy. And he says in the book of Romans, I make much of my ministry in order that I might stir up my own people to jealousy. I want them to know hmm. that they're on the outside looking in, that there's a big feast going on inside, a feast of worship and of blessing from Almighty God. And they're missing it. They're on the outside and they need to enter in. So I want them to feel jealous and feel like, I wish I could be part of that and want to come in while there's time. Parenthetically, at a much lower level, I think this is why we, um, uh, when we're having the Lord's Supper, we, we fence the table. We put a fence around it with words saying, if you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ and have not yet testified to that by water baptism, we ask that you refrain and not partake. Mm. And there are people sitting right there. We're not trying to be rude, but we want them to know there's a feast and they're not in yet. They need to come in through the door and the door is Christ. Mm. So there's this sense of, I want my people, Paul would say, I want my people to feel jealous that they're missing something because they really are. What a powerful motivation for people who had seen themselves as insiders, right? As mm -hmm. God's people uh, for their entire existence to so now feel on the outside and want in to what God is doing through Christ. Mm -hmm. Why does Luke say that Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly? And why was this boldness necessary in dealing with the issue of Jewish opposition to Gentile believers in the Messiah? Well, throughout the book of Acts, we see uh, some in sometimes more in one place than another, but we see a lot of of hostility and even rage on the part of Jewish opponents to the gospel. Not every Jew was opposed to the gospel. As a matter of fact, some Jews believed the gospel and became followers of Christ. As Paul says in Romans 11, has God rejected his people? Not at all. I'm a, I'm a Jew myself, a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin. I, you know, there are a number of Jews that do believe in Jesus. And then there are probably some middle of the roaders that didn't care one way or the other. They just went about their lives. But there are some others that were filled with zeal, uh, a misguided zeal mm -hmm. for God and for the law. 
and used it as Paul himself did before his conversion to persecute the gospel and to persecute Christians and to oppose the gospel. And so uh, fundamentally, they they looked on on uh, the gospel as something they needed to oppose in service to God. And Jesus himself said this would happen. I think in John sixteen, the time will come when everyone, uh, when people who who uh, even seek to kill you will think they are serving God. And so that he's speaking again about Jewish people. So there's a tremendous amount of hostility. The the Jews are talking abusively against what Paul. Uh, and Barnabas were preaching, it says in verse 45. So Paul and Barnabas have to be bold. They're standing up against people who are filled with rage, even a murderous rage, and they go on preaching. Now, what does Paul mean when he says that it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you and you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life in verses 46 and 47? Well, that goes back to that statement that we hear again and again, to the Jew first and then also to the Gentile. And so it seems not just overall in the coming of the Messiah, as Jesus himself said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. He said to the Syrophoenician woman when she begged him to come and heal her demon-possessed daughter, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. But we're going to find out from Isaiah 49, we'll get to that in just a moment, how God always had intended the gospel to turn to the Gentiles and go to the ends of the earth. And we'll talk about that. But uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, it seems not only that the Messiah came first to the Jew and then later would be offered to the Gentiles, that in every city, wherever possible, the apostles would go to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And it seems that these marching orders they had from God himself, we had to speak to you first. Mm. And now, he said, you reject it and consider yourselves unworthy of eternal life. I think he's using that kind of language to heighten that very jealousy I was just talking about. You guys are on the outside. You don't have eternal life. You're you're basically disqualifying yourselves Mm. by rejecting the Messiah. So since you've done that, we now turn to the Gentiles. So Paul and Barnabas say, for so the Lord has commanded us, and then quote God's statement of Christ. How is God's statement to Christ a command for the church? Let's talk about this prophecy we've mentioned a couple of times. Yeah. First of all, that's a a remarkable insight, and it has to do with the singular in the Greek. Um, um, You know, I've made you singular a light for the Gentiles. So we'll get to that. But let's just try to understand the prophecy in Isaiah. Um, There is a series of um, suffering servant songs or servant songs in in Isaiah, prophecies in Isaiah, that are so very clear about the coming of the Messiah. And and we have an indication of this uh, very plainly in the preaching Jesus does at the beginning of his ministry in his hometown in Nazareth, where he finds the scroll uh, of Isaiah, unrolls, unrolls it and finds where it is written in Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and then other statements there. And the scroll was rolled back up. He sat down and he said, today, in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. But uh, that language, the spirit of the Lord, the sovereign Lord is on me, it makes Isaiah the prophet speak as if he were the Messiah. He's speaking with the voice of Christ. And so there are actually a number of these prophecies, and one of them is in Isaiah 49. In Isaiah 49, verse 1, it says, Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant uh, nations. So islands and nations represent the most distant parts of the earth. Before I was born, the Lord called me, and from my birth he has made mention of my name. 
Again, that's that first person, the same thing in Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Who's the me? The Messiah, Christ. Same thing here. So listen to me, you distant islands and distant coastlands and foreign nations. Before I was born, the Lord, he said, called me. The Lord is almighty God, Yahweh. But we know now, Trinitarian uh, believers, Father, Son, and Spirit, this is the Father speaking to the pre-incarnate Son before I was born. So pre-incarnate, before I was born, the Lord called me. In other words, I'm the one he planned to be the Savior of the ends of the earth. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. And then in verse 2, Isaiah 49, 2, he made my mouth like a sharpened sword in the shadow of his hand. He hid me. In other words, Jesus... Uh, tongue, his mouth, was a weapon. The word of the Lord was a weapon, but it was it was a weapon against Satan. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and powers, etc. Paul says. So he is there to destroy the works of the devil, and he does it by the by the word that he preached. And so that's the idea of, of a weapon. Um, he said, in the shadow of his hand, he hid me. There was a sense of being concealed. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant. So that's the suffering servant. Jesus is the servant of the Lord. Uh, Philippians chapter two, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. That's what he was. He was the Lord's servant. And then he calls himself Israel. I'm not gonna get into that. It's a deep statement, but I'll, I'll just say this. Jesus is the fulfillment of what, what Israel as the son of God should have been. So we can move on from that. I don't wanna belabor it, but that's what I believe is happening there. But I said, I've labored to no purpose. I've spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand and my reward is with my God. This is all language spoken by the Messiah and I'm not gonna walk through it, um, but let's get now to Isaiah 49, five and six. And now the Lord says, that's God the Father, he who formed me in the womb, um, pre-incarnate Christ now having a body formed in the womb, an embryo, a holy embryo formed in the womb of the Virgin Mary, by the power of the Holy Spirit, formed me in the womb to be his servant. All right, for what? What was the purpose? To bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. Again, the statement, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. He was sent to Israel to rescue them and bring them back to God. Back from what? Back from sin, mm. back from idolatry, back from being basically pagans, um, to restore them and bring them back. For I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has been my strength. He says... That's God the Father. God the Father says, it is too small a thing for you, singular, you Jesus, you the Messiah, you my son. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. So that's, that is your mission, but that's too small. I've got much, much bigger things planned for you. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, this very prophecy was cited by Simeon when Jesus was brought to be circumcised and he had been waiting for the Lord's Messiah and he said, he called him a light for the Gentiles. Mm. So th this is Jesus, this is the Messiah, the light for the Gentiles. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, Isaiah nine, Jesus is that light. Now here's the, here's the point. Let's go back then to um, our text today, which is um, Acts, four, or Acts 13, sorry, verse 47. This is Paul speaking. Hmm. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you, singular, a light for the Gentiles. Now stop right there. Is Paul the light for the Gentiles? Not in that sense. We are the light of the world, Jesus said. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. But not like this. 
Paul is not the light for the Gentiles. Jesus is. Hmm. And yet the statement made by God the Father to God the Son saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth is Paul and Barnabas's marching orders because their commanding officer has a commission from the king of the universe, almighty God. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of, your, of the earth, your possession. Okay, that's what our master, that's, what he, that's his inheritance. That's the kingdom he's coming to. We will fight to make it happen. As it says in Psalm 2 or in Psalm 110, your troops will be willing in the day of your battle. Mm -hmm. They are ready to do what it takes to make you the king of the ends of the earth. So um, I think it's beautiful here. He said, this is what the Lord has commanded us. This is our, this is, these are our marching orders. I'm, we are here to make Jesus the light for the Gentiles to bring his salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, again, Paul mentions this because of the word Gentiles. He's saying, you Jews reject the gospel and you consider yourselves unworthy of eternal life, guess what? We're going to now go to the Gentiles. Mm. But don't think this is just something we've made up. God predicted this through Isaiah the prophet six centuries before Jesus was born. This gospel was always made for the Gentiles, mm. and we're here to do that. It's powerful as we meditate on that to think of that also then as, as our marching orders, to take that and see it not only applied to Jesus as the light to the Gentiles, but mm -hmm. also to Paul and Barnabas, and then subsequently to us as we make Christ known. Yeah, and let me say this one thing about the word commanded. I, I feel like every Christian, including me, underestimates the weight of that command. It's not like a suggestion. It's not like something you might want it like a hobby we might want to take up or something like that. No, if we are Christians, the same command uh, stands over every single Christian. The question is, will we be obedient or not? Mm. We must feel that there's some number of people the Lord has assigned us to reach with the gospel. That is our uh, command. Those are our marching orders. All right. So what does it mean that the Gentiles glorified the word of the Lord in response to Paul and Barnabas's statement? All right. The Gentiles, uh, it says when they heard it, they were, they were glad. This made them happy. Hmm. And they glorified the word of the Lord or honored the word of the Lord. I think he talks about this very thing in 2 Thessalonians, maybe chapter 3, where he says, you know, pray that the word of the Lord may be, may be held in honor and spread rapidly. So, that, again, it would be uh, like in the Lord's Prayer, you know, our Father in heaven, um, may your name be hallowed or held in honor, and may your kingdom come, may your will be done, etc. The idea here is that they are respecting the word. As he says again in Thessalonians, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God. That's how they honored it. They said, this message that you're proclaiming, it's coming from the, the God of the universe. Mm. And they honored it by believing it, by saying God is, is uh, giving us good news that our sins can be forgiven through faith in Christ. Andy, you mentioned that they honored and... Uh, uh, glorified the word of the Lord by believing. Now, mm -hmm. the last phrase in this verse is interesting. It says, uh, in my translation, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. How should we understand that statement? Oh, the sequence is vital. Their appointment to eternal life precedes their believing. Mm. It actually is the ground of their believing. Their faith comes from their having been appointed to eternal life. And it's very, it's impossible for me to hear the phrase appointed unto eternal life without understanding election. Before the foundation of the world, God chose these people that came to faith in Christ by name to be followers of Christ. 
all that the Father gives me will come to me. And in John 6, when he says, will come to me, he means believe in me. Hmm. So they come to believe. And so here, the elect chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, then when they hear the gospel, honor it as the word of God and believe in Christ. Hmm. No one believes in Christ without first being appointed unto eternal life. No one just takes it on themselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And the only ones he's going to draw are those that he had given to the Son by election. So this is a strong teaching of election. All who are appointed for eternal life believe. And so that's what we do. That's what missions is. That's what evangelism. We're trying to find the people appointed for eternal life who have not yet believed and proclaim the gospel so that in the hearing of the gospel, they can cross over from death to life by believing. Now, verse 49 says, the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Mm. What does this teach us about the spread of the gospel at that time? And do you think this also gives us insight into what Paul would later say since uh, he no longer had any room for work in these regions? Yeah, so I think what's happening here is a, a rapid spiritual multiplication. Uh, so you could you could lead someone to Christ who then leads someone else to Christ, who then leads other people to Christ, who then lead many other people to Christ, and the mm. thing just goes. Like biological reproduction, but much faster because it takes many years for a baby to become physically old enough to procreate. Um, but a new Christian could lead another person to Christ that same day or, hmm. or the next day. Hmm. So it can go very, very rapidly. And, and sometimes with the power of the Holy Spirit working, um, that's exactly what happens. So people who were just a short time ago a part of the harvest then become harvesters and, and do the work the, of, the, of harvesting. So it's a, a beautiful thing. Jesus said, whoever does not gather with me scatters. Um, but amazingly, those who are gathered then can become gatherers themselves. And so um, it's going rapidly. And Paul didn't control it. Many, many of the churches um, that are spreading through this whole area where Paul later says there's nowhere for me to work in this area because everyone's heard the gospel. They didn't, Paul didn't do that. Hmm. Um, it just is the work of the Holy Spirit spreading like wildfire. So it's pretty awesome to see the work of the Holy Spirit rapidly accelerating the gospel through the whole region. And that region was modern day Turkey spread all over that whole area. How did the Jews operate and organize the persecution against the gospel and what's the significance of Paul and Barnabas shaking the dust off against Pisidian Antioch? All right, verse 50 says, uh, the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. So these are wealthy, influential people mm. um, who do not believe the gospel. And the Jews incite them to cause trouble. They're influential, so they can cause trouble. They're, they're, they're the movers and shakers in, in those communities. And they stir up trouble. They stir up persecution, and they use slander. They use uh, other means, and they end up being expelled. Uh, Paul and Barnabas are expelled from that area, so they can't do this work anymore. Mm -hmm. This is clearly the work of Satan. And so uh, the gospel has to, has to stop at this point. Um, but it says in verse 51, they shook, shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went on to Iconium. Now, this is the very thing Jesus said uh, to do in Matthew chapter 10. Um, uh, if anyone will not listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony or protest against them. Uh, Jews, pious Jews would do that when they would leave Gentile regions. 
Um, and they're basically saying, I'm going to get all of this pagan dirt off me and I'm coming back to the Holy Land. I'm coming back to the promised land. Hmm. Well, Jesus said, do it to Jews. Do it to unbelievers because they're acting like pagans. And mm. so Paul's basically testifying to Jews, you're no better than pagans. They, they would recognize, they would know what the shake the dust off, off your feet symbol meant. Now for all the opposition and persecution that they face, verse 52 concludes chapter 13 by saying, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. How could suffering persecution for the gospel result in joy? Well, there's a simple command that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And it's the same thing we saw earlier in Acts chapter 5 when the, when the disciples, the apostles, were beaten for the gospel. Um, they were filled with joy uh, because they had been counted worthy of suffering abuse for the name of, of Jesus. So that's mm. uh, Acts 5.41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing mm. because they had been counted worthy of suffering di disgrace for the name. A very, very small percentage of Christians uh, in every generation are physically beaten uh, for the gospel. I've, that's never happened to me. I've had some people angry at me. I've had some people say mean things, uh, and that's included in blessed are you when people insult you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. But to be beaten for the gospel um, in Acts 5, they were amazed that they had been counted worthy of that. And I think we have the same attitude here. They're filled with joy. But even aside from rewards in heaven for persecution, they're filled with joy because of the gospel itself. Their sins are forgiven. God loves them. They're reconciled to God. Mm. Uh, God is walking with them. Um, they have the joy of fellowship with him, of a clear conscience, of a bright future, infinitely bright future in heaven. And the Holy Spirit's in them. They're filled with the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit is joy, among other things. And so there, there's nothing that persecution can do uh, to steal that joy. And so that's a beautiful testimony. I love Acts 13.52. Now, while it can often be our practice as we're reading our uh, English Bibles to stop at a chapter break, we want to press on because yeah. it seems that we really continue uh, this flow of thought or this narrative as we unfold both their expulsion from one region and their ministry in the next. Mm -hmm. At Iconium, why did Paul and Barnabas go to the Jewish synagogues first? And mm -hmm. how do we explain the fact that a great multitude of the believers were Gentiles mm -hmm if Paul and Barnabas were preaching at a synagogue. Yeah, so first of all, just their buoyancy is amazing here. They're persecuted, they don't give up, they're not discouraged, they just keep going. And so they're going on now to Iconium. And so as usual, it says in Acts 14.1, this was their pa pattern, this was their practice, they're going into the Jewish synagogue, as we just said a few minutes ago, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And so they go into the Jewish synagogue. And uh, it's really amazing. There's an interesting statement here, uh, which you can read right through, but you wouldn't even notice it. Um, in my translation, it says, there they spoke so effectively that mm -hmm. a great number of Jews and Gentiles believe. What does yours say there? It says they spoke in such a way. Right. They so spoke. It, you know, some of the translations are just simply, they so spoke or spoke in such a, a way. So here's, here's what I get out of that. It actually does matter mm -hmm. how you speak the gospel. If you were to speak it in a bored kind of flat way, people aren't going to believe it. Mm. Um, it's the, the way it is for me as a preacher. It really does matter how I say what I say. I have to speak in such a way 
that people believe. So the manner is important. I would not say it's as important as the message, but they really do go together. The message and the manner of the proclamation go together. I think this verse tells us that. Um, but the Holy Spirit enabled them to speak in a, a very, very powerful way. Now, I want to tell a little story about George Whitfield, one of the greatest preachers in the 18th century, just a tremendously passionate preacher of the gospel. He was very dramatic, mm. very emotional, very powerful, and very strong doctrinally. And he had a friendship, an interesting friendship with uh, an agnostic or maybe even an atheist, a deist, I guess, uh, named Benjamin Franklin, who we know very well. And they had a long friendship. They had a, a lot of letters, and he was constantly trying to win Benjamin Franklin to faith in Christ. Um, but whenever whenever Whitfield was in Philadelphia and uh, was preaching the gospel, Benjamin Franklin made certain to go listen to him. And one of his friends finally called him out on it and said, you don't even, you don't, why are you going? You don't believe those things. And he said, no, but he does. Mm. Hmm. And he just wanted to be around a man who so passionately believed what he was proclaiming, even though he didn't believe it. Mm. It's almost wistful. It's like, I wish I could believe the way he does. So I think that's what I, it means to speak in such a manner or so speak that people believe. And so um, as a result of that, a lot of Jews and Gentiles believe. Now, who are these Gentiles, as you asked? Maybe they are, um, you know, God-fearers that are there in that synagogue, as we mentioned. Or maybe it just spilled out in the streets and it's like, what's this all about? Hmm. And they wanted to hear, who knows. But uh, some Gentiles are brought into the kingdom. What does verse 2 mean when it says that the Jews poisoned their minds yeah. against the brothers? Well, that goes back even to the end of chapter 13 where it says that that uh, the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and had them expelled. How do you do that? Poison the minds of the people. They don't know them that well. It's like, who are they? Oh, they're, they're stirring up insurrection. They're bad people. They're in it for the money. They're, you know, they're using gossip or slander or some evil thing, and so they are putting poison in the minds of the people. And again, you've got more persecution. Um, and it says that they're uh, poisoning their minds uh, against the brothers. So that would be perhaps not just Paul and Barnabas, but all believers in Christ. Hmm. How did signs and wonders serve as a witness to validate the gospel that Paul and Barnabas are preaching? The Lord, it says here, confirmed their message by enabling them to do signs and wonders. So the way it would work in the book of Acts is sometimes the apostles would do miracles to attract a crowd. Sometimes the crowd was already there and the miracles would be there to validate the message. Mm. Um, in any case, we know the Lord was not expelling uh, disease, sickness, and death from planet Earth. Death is the final enemy. And even Jesus acknowledged that. People are just going to end up getting sick and dying. So though he did mighty miracles, that was not the point. So it really ultimately uh, validates the truth of the gospel. That's what the Lord was doing. He confirmed the message by enabling the apostles to do these incredible signs and wonders. Why is division so frequently the result of faithful gospel preaching? Mm -hmm. Well, it, you see that again and again. There is no book of the Bible that, that so clearly portrays that as the Gospel of John. Again and again and again, you get the division. Um, you know, the believers and unbelievers. You get darkness and light. You got the children of the devil and you got the children of God. And so that's just it. I mean, those are the two great categories there are. Every single solitary human being that ever has been or ever will be on Judgment Day will be divided into two groups and only two. Will have nothing to do with nationality, have nothing to do with gender, have nothing to do with with uh, wealth or any of that. Will have to do with simple faith in Christ or not. 
Um, it'll be it'll be um, sheep and goats, mm. good fish and bad fish, wheat and weeds. It's always the two um, the two the division into two categories. And so it is here. You've got believers and unbelievers, people that will love the message and people that will oppose it. Now, for the second time in short order, we see the apostles flee another city. What causes them to flee this time? And is it okay to flee or shouldn't we be willing to stand and suffer? It's absolutely okay to flee because Jesus commanded it in Matthew 10. When you're persecuted in one place, flee to the next. Well, there it is. Hmm. So we've got a word from the Lord on this. You don't have to stand and take a beating. And so here the plot is among the Gentiles and Jews and the leaders to, it says, mistreat them and stone them. So they're ready to kill them. They're, they're, they're ready to kill them and they hear about it. Um, again, this is the protection of the Holy Spirit and they're able to get out of there before they're killed. And after they fled, as was often their pattern, they continue to preach the gospel. How should we account for their remarkable perseverance? And what final thoughts do you have for us on the passage we've looked at today? So let's go back to that insight we had in Acts 13, 47. Uh, this is what the Lord has commanded us. They were commanded hmm. by the Lord to do this. Hmm. Uh, they were not discharged from the army. And so I consider my life worth nothing to me, said Paul, if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me or commanded me to do, which is to testify to the gospel. And so we're going to see amazing perseverance, but it's going to be even more amazing when Paul is actually stoned, literally stoned, should have died, maybe even did die. Could be that the Lord raised him from the dead. This is in the next chapter. And he gets up out of a pile of stones and keeps preaching. Mm. So what do I get out of that? It's like, man, be persevering in the message of the gospel and in the ministry of the gospel. Ask the Lord to work this kind of boldness and constancy in us for his glory. Andy, it's striking to me just as we close, Second uh, Timothy 2 uh, says in verse 3, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Just as you said, they were single-mindedly focused on pleasing the one who had listed them, not getting entangled in other things, but being willing to share in suffering as good soldiers of Christ Jesus. It's a great word, Wes. Well, this has been episode 26 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. We invite you to join us next time for episode 27, entitled The Miracle at Lystra, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 20. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys Podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.